Welcome to ACP's podcast, Inside the Lab, where we discuss anything and everything that concerns today's laboratory professionals and pathologists. My name is Kelly Swales, and I'm one of your co-hosts. I'm an ASCP certified medical technologist and a writer. I work in the publications department at ASCP. And my name is Dr. Loti Mulder. I'm the Director of Leadership and Empowerment at ASCP, and I'm also one of your co-hosts. So today we're going to be talking about COVID-19 disparities in minority populations and patients. We've got some really great guests lined up, and I'm really looking forward to what they have to say. It is my pleasure to welcome three very special guests. Dr. Samdi is an Associate Professor of Pathology at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. He received both his MD and PhD degrees from the University of Florida. Following a year in internal medicine at New York Medical College, he completed his residency in pathology and a fellowship in cytopathology at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. In addition to being an academic pathologist, He has been involved in multiple global health initiatives with a primary focus in increasing laboratory capacity in low to middle income countries, such as Haiti and African countries. He's originally from Haiti and serves on multiple ACB committees, including the Diversity and Inclusion Committee. Dr. Valerie Fitzhugh is an Associate Professor and Interim Chair of the Department of Pathology, Immunology, and Laboratory Medicine at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School and the Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. She is academically productive in her specialty areas of bone and soft tissue pathology and cytopathology, having authored many peer-reviewed manuscripts, seven book chapters, one book in press, and has given many national and international presentations. Dr. Fitzhugh was actively involved in the COVID testing process and has interest in recruitment of black and other underrepresented minorities to pathology and racial disparities in treating patients. Mr. Aaron Odegaard is a medical technologist in infectious diagnostic laboratories at Baptist Health Jacksonville. He received his master's degree in biomedical sciences, molecular pharmacology, and experimental therapeutics from Mayo Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences. Mr. Odegaard is passionate about medical laboratory science. He serves as an AACP career ambassador, as a chair-elect of the AACP Council of Laboratory Professionals, and is on the Diversity and Inclusion Committee, as well as the AACP Board of Directors. He enjoys educating the public, medical laboratory science students, and professionals on the topics of antimicrobial resistance and stewardship through many platforms, including classrooms, local and regional meetings, and social media. Welcome to our esteemed guest. Thank you so much for joining us on one of our very first episodes. It's really an honor. Doing good. Thank you. Excellent. Happy to be here. Doing great. Thanks for having me. All right. First, let's get some housekeeping out of the way. If you're listening to this podcast and you want CME or CMLE credits for doing so, you can go to the ASCP store and look for Inside the Lab, and you can claim your credits that way. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should claim only the credit commiserate with the extent of their participation in the activity. All right, now let's. Uh, now that that housekeeping is out of the way, let's dive right in. Dr. Somdi, can you tell me a little Bye. bit about the disparities seen among COVID-19 cases? 
Well, thank you for having me and your guests, and thank you again. Thank you, Kelly and Dr. Mulder, and thank you for keeping this topic on the forefront. We cannot become complacent about these disparities, especially there's so much going on around COVID-19. So good to be here. And um, so essentially, regarding your question, what have we observed since the beginning of this pandemic, places that reported data by race and ethnicity indicate that African-Americans, Latino, and Native American um, bear a disproportionate burden of COVID-19 cases and related outcomes. For example, in Chicago, more than 50% of the COVID-19 cases and about 70% of the death involved in African-American, although Black make up only 30% of the population. Similarly, in Louisiana, 71% of the deaths have occurred among Black individuals, even though they only make up 32% of the population. So those consistent pattern of racial and ethnic differences have also been observed in other minority communities as well. I'll just give you a few data for some few cities. But um, broadly speaking, as a society, I think we should be asking um, why some of our people are more vulnerable than others to these COVID-19 cases and, and outcomes. So, Dr. Fitzhugh, let's uh, turn the same question on to you. Well, first, I should say thank you both so much for having me here. It really is an honor and a pleasure to be able to speak about the disparities involving COVID-19 as it's really wrecked the community here in New Jersey in particular. I firmly believe and agree with what Dr. Samdi said. You know, many of the issues that we've seen are that our Black, Latino, Latina, and Indigenous American populations have been disproportionately affected by COVID-19. And you know, having the pleasure to work at an urban academic center, as I do at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School, we saw in the flesh a disproportionate number of both Black and Latino and Latina patients die of COVID-19, many who were admitted, many who were on ventilators. And you know, I do think there are some causes to this, which I think we can discuss a bit further. And what do you think are some of those causes? So you know, I think there are a number of things that go into this issue. Some of it is a lack of access to care. And we know that particularly in urban communities where unfortunately many of our underrepresented minorities live, there's a lack of access to medical care health literacy is not as good, I would say, as it is in some of the majority communities. But there's also issues of mistrust around medical care. And those issues of mistrust come from bias, which is well known to exist within the medical community, which is unfortunate. It's been researched, it's been well known. We've seen it in things such as the Tuskegee experiments, as well as the bodies of black women who were used for you know gynecologic experimentation. So we know that these disparity, that these issues with mistrust in our communities exist and have been there for many, many years. You know, the bias, I think, has kept a lot of Black people out of the hospitals. At the same time, there is an issue with, and we've seen it published in many places, the New York Times actually had a great article, I think it was on May 10th, regarding this, where they spoke to Black families, and there were members of these families who went in for COVID testing, had the same symptoms, maybe missing one, so maybe they didn't have the fever where they didn't have the anosmia, but had a lot of the other classic symptoms of COVID-19 and were sent home with Tylenol, who weren't tested and then died at home days later. So we have to recognize that there is some bias, whether it's implicit or explicit in the treatment of underrepresented minorities when it comes to COVID-19. And we have to battle that 
In particular, when looking at Black populations, we recognize that there are higher rates of hypertension, heart disease, and diabetes, and in some other ethnic groups. And while this puts them at higher risk, it's also important that these patients be treated effectively for those conditions so that they're not at such high risk for COVID-19. So I think those are some of the issues that we're facing. So it sounds a little bit like the health disparities that were already in place before COVID-19 just continued, maybe increased or continued. I remember reading about how with very similar to the article that you shared about Black patients who had COVID symptoms that there were you know, between doctors who either had had a patient, the Black or white patient who had, had exactly the same symptoms, how much less likely they are to prescribe pain medicines to their Black patients. So it sounds very similar to me. What are, what are anybody's thoughts on that? I mean, I would agree with um, Dr. Fatou's, um COVID just kind of brought to the forefront a lot of the issues that we've already had to a greater extent, just um, access to care, access to testing, and a trust in um, health professionals. And Tessie was a great example of you know, why you might not trust your physician. Um, uh, John Oliver did a, um, a piece talking about um, disparities with racial inequality in medicine, and he was just talking about had cases where people went to the hospital and didn't make it because their pain was ignored. That it was like, oh, it's just, oh, you, I'll just give you Tylenol. I'm sure you'll be fine. But if it would have been someone of a different ethnicity, it would maybe have been a different outcome. And uh, the case that he had, he actually had um, a stereotypical black man that was getting wild. So I just didn't say anything to the doctor. I wish I would have said something. My wife might have still been here if I had been a little more forceful. So there are those disparities. And even with um, our blood collection, this is brought up the um, restrictions that are on the LGBT community about how um, donating for like a convalescent plasma, people have talked about how yeah, I'm a COVID survivor, but I'm a member of the LGBT community. You know, I, I can't donate or I have not had relations with somebody for three months. And these are restrictions that were in place because of how we were lagging in testing back in the 80s, not where we are now with HIV testing and all these different tests. I mean, we're even seeing it with um, our education system. We're not prepared for kids to go back. Are putting our teachers in a bad position, asking them to do tons of things with no extra money. So even my sister, who's um, as long as she's a specialized teacher, she's uh, um, it's definitely brought a lot of things to the forefront that we've needed to talk about and fix. Um, so I guess that might be one silver line that we can try to address some of these things. In terms of this pandemic, I think we've seen such major disparities in terms of who's being exposed, even as Dr. Fitchu mentioned, um, who's getting it and including the mortality rates, like Dr. Asandi said. I was reading a study that was published earlier in July that showed that per 10,000 people, 23 white people have coronavirus compared to 62 who are black and 73 who are Latino. And one of the quotes from that article states, Black and Latino people have been disproportionately affected by the coronavirus in a widespread manner that spans the country, throughout hundreds of countries in urban, suburban, and rural areas, and across all age groups. And this clearly shows the racial inequities of coronavirus, including how you said, Mr. Odegaard, about the returning back to school. You, know, you, see, you kind of see these disparities play out in all aspects of life. Dr. Sambi, what, what are your thoughts about if the coronavirus pandemic has merely brought these disparities more to the service um, that were already present in healthcare, or has, do you think that the pandemic increased the disparities? 
Yes, I would argue a little more for the former, but both statements are true. I completely agree with Dr. Fitzhugh and Mr. Ottergaard. The pandemic has brought a spotlight on long-standing health disparities that predate the pandemic. As they already mentioned, access to health care, lack of medical insurances, and lack of healthcare infrastructure in some communities. I remember when I was in New Mexico, the southern part of New Mexico in some counties only had one physician and they, people have to travel far. So those predate the pandemic. And also the higher rate of pre-existing conditions such as diabetes, obesity, hypertension. Now we know they are biological vulnerabilities for more severe COVID-19 outcome, uh, including uh, death. But I also think the pandemic increased the disparity in, in some way, partly because many of the recommended prevention measures that uh, recognize for the general population and they're not really achievable in some of this community. One example is shelter in place. Uh, shelter in place work if you can have physical distancing, but we know in some of those uh, underrepresented minority communities, the high housing density even though people may stay at home, but they don't really achieve physical distancing. And unfortunately, some of those folks, Black, Latino, Native American, they're unable to work from home. So they have to go and physically be outside interacting with people. So that definitely put them at a higher risk. And during COVID-19, like in Colorado right now, there's been a lot increase in virtual care delivery. And that's not possible for everyone, especially and folks who don't have access to the internet, don't have the device to, to get those care. So that, in that sense, it has increased this, this disparity because they don't have access to those new form of healthcare delivery. Dr. Fitzhugh, did you want to comment as well? I saw you nodding your head. Yes, nodding my head in massive agreement with Dr. Sandy said, you know, social distancing works very well when you can distance. And it's unfortunate that, as he said, in a lot of our underrepresented communities, there is no ability to social distancing. You may not be able to have a mask. And when paying your rent depends on whether or not you get up and go to work because you don't have the ability to work from home, you're going to make the choice that's going to keep a roof over your head and feed your family. And these choices continue to put people at risk, particularly when you have people in our communities who refuse to mask up when they're in public places. You know, despite the fact that there are laws in some states that are, you know, that enforce mask use when social distancing is not possible. And in New Jersey, we went pretty strict and our governor has asked that we mask up even when we're outdoors. And I think it's really important for people to recognize that that barrier prevents the spread. If both people are wearing a mask, I've seen numbers as high as 95 percent decrease of transmission with COVID-19. This is a big deal. So if people, you know, I understand that, you know, we're not all fortunate enough to be able to distance because we live, you know, we don't all live in places that are expansive, massively large homes where people could each be in a different room. You know, we don't have those opportunities, but you know, if we can help bring in some of those other things and be respectful to the people who have to work in the supermarkets, in the post offices, the places that cannot close, then we have a better chance at really combating COVID-19. Mr. Odegaard, did you have any, any other comments about this subject as well? I would definitely agree with the, um, everyone here. I didn't even think about the fact that, I mean, we are moving more towards telemedicine, but if you don't have access to internet, something that should be a basic right for everyone, you, you can't partake in telemedicine. 
another big thing is that, um, like Dr. Fatuz was talking about, the fact that if you know you are the only breadwinner in in a home, you have to go. Um, and then with some places, you need a a negative test. If you test positive or if you have symptoms, you have to stay home. You have to wait. And then if you don't have access to get the test, that's another six, seven days of waiting to even just get the test. And then with a lot of the reference labs that they might be being sent to, your turnaround time could be four or five days. So that's a good 12 days that you're having to sit at home and wait. I've lucked out, and at least in our laboratory, I had someone with questionable symptoms. They were negative, but she had to stay at home for those seven days while we waited for uh, one of our reference centers to um, get the test result back. Because with where we are in a community setting, we've been given a limited amount of testing, so we've been having to get a little more creative with how we're making sure that we have the right test to put our patients that are being admitted into the right areas. So some of our employee health testing has having to be referenced out as one of testing. So a lot of people don't have built a vacation time or they're, they have to go. So even just with testing, you're, you're waiting even longer. Um, I kind of feel like it's brought up even a disparity with income because we've been talking about the extra $600 a month in um, unemployment benefits, and that's been cut off. And the fact that we've got representatives that are getting finicky about $600 kind of shows that if the disparities in income in the United States, if things are the way they, they should be, it, you should have the access of extra money to get you through a hard time, but people aren't getting paid what they are. So COVID is kind of amplifying that more. And so, it, 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 you know, what I'm really hearing is that there, one, the disparities were already there and that it's really impacting. It basically sounds a lot like privilege, right? I mean, we're the, the people that can work from home, they can self-isolate, they can can wear masks, it really comes from a place of privilege because we're able to do these things. And there's a lot of, as we as we just heard, there's a lot of people that are unable. And then exactly like you said, Dr. Fitzhu, like it's, you know, if you have to choose between, you know, feeding your family and risking your lives or being safe, but possibly losing your home or not being able to feed your family, the majority of people is gonna is gonna risk their own lives in order to to take care of their family and loved ones. So what are, and then of course, the, the, the whole issue around testing um, in terms of, uh, you know, getting sent home with the Tylenol instead of receiving a test. What are some things that we can do to really, to, to combat these challenges that we're seeing? What are some recommendations that, that you have? If I could start, if that's okay. You know, I think pathologists and laboratory medicine professionals really should be at the forefront of this pandemic. And I've been disappointed thus far to see that while we've seen many different physicians of many different specialties interviewed, spoken to in the news, in the media, rarely, if ever, does someone talk to a pathologist you know, or to a medical laboratory scientist who has been in the forefront of testing from the beginning. You know, we're the ones who are developing the tests. We're the ones who are talking to our you know, government officials because we're having such trouble getting reagent getting viral transport media and, and, you know, getting swabs so that patients could be tested. And these things are all crucial and important. And I think pathologists and laboratory medicine professionals need to really start using their voices and be heard. One, because I think many of us have such a profound and deep interest in how our patients do, how we champion them, you know, how we can get resources to them. You know, 
one of the reasons I became a pathologist is because I could help so many people. And the fact that many of them would never know who I was didn't matter. It's just having that hand and being able to touch so many lives, which we do through clinical lab testing every single day. But I think you know that as a profession, we also need to speak up more against bias and against racism. We have voices that carry. As medical professionals, there's so much that we can do to speak against these things that plague our society. And I think our communities of color have to know that there are professionals who are genuinely concerned about their welfare and about the disparities that exist in the communities. And you know, if I had one wish, it would be that pathologists and medical lab professionals were more prominent in this entire struggle, because thus far, I don't think we have been. And I think our voice is an important one that hasn't been heard. Yeah, Dr. Fitzhugh, I would actually, unsurprisingly, really, really agree with that. As some of you may know, I'm fairly active on Twitter, and that's, that's been my big bullhorn, that you know, the laboratory pathology community needs to be loud. We need to be out there. We, we're the experts on testing. We're the experts on validation. We're the experts on, you know, PCR methodology. We're the experts on test throughput and turnaround time and getting our testing or, you know, like the testing in the United States up to where it should be. We're the experts. And I feel like sometimes we're left out of that conversation. I'm a big baseball fan, right? And so a lot of my activity on Twitter over the past few months has been kind of railing against the MLB season, just the stuff that was coming out in the media about this is our testing paradigm. This is this, this is that. And I'm like, okay, you're not, did you guys even talk to anyone in the laboratory? Because this is not going to work the way you think it's going to work. Um, so I, I really agree with you, Dr. Fitzhugh. Like we, it's sort of at this point, it's sort of a, a cliche, right? That you know the laboratory's in the basement and we're a black box, and you, you know, you send specimens in and you get results out and everything's amazing, but no one knows, or I shouldn't say no one. I should say not enough people are aware and appreciate of what we do uh, for the healthcare community as a whole, and I think that we need to be louder. So I agree. I agree with both of you. Other thing we can do as a pathology community, we can bring the test to the communities, you know, where, wherever they are, uh, whether the churches, local gathering places, any are taking places, but really making it easy for the testing in those communities. The other thing also, I think one of you mentioned that earlier, there's a mistrust between those underrepresented minority communities and the healthcare system. So, one of the things we should do is engage local leaders, local healthcare workers for the education and advocacy portion of this mission, because the key thing is, is building trust. Unfortunately, in this pandemic, it might be too late to build trust quickly. So having local leaders and healthcare workers, uh, that can facilitate the conversation. Uh, another thing we can also do is collect demographic data on all cases. So when, you, when labs are taking tests, and they get the result, they also have to collect, you know, all the demographic data if possible so that we can inform public health policy later on. So I think that those things can also help. I do strongly agree that we need to be more visible. I haven't seen as many laboratory professionals in the media. Um, but so what we've done, we, 
locally for our health system, any local news that comes through. I've been working with the communications department and the infectious diagnostics group at Baptist Health is very um, diverse. So anytime we're doing any kind of news piece, it's not just me that's in the forefront. It's everyone that's part of the team, that's part of our diverse team. Um, so anyone that's watching can go, okay, I see someone that's like me. Um, it, it, it is our job kind of to have our voices be heard and step up because this is our time being driven by testing and care and we're the people in the background, but um, we're definitely a little more visible. Um, as far as getting the testing sites into areas where people are, um, a lot of what our health system's been doing is putting a lot of free testing sites throughout the community. Um, so that's definitely essential to get the testing where people are. You don't have to drive 20 to test, but if you have to sit there for 12 hours when you're already missing work or you're out of work and having to take care of family, you're probably not going to go wait in line for 12 hours for a test, so accessibility. But, um, definitely getting more accessibility and our voices out there is very important. Mr. Odegaard, I kind of want to transition back to what you had kind of said a little while ago and also just now with this answer. From a laboratory medicine perspective, I just from my years on the bench, I know sometimes I felt really helpless. Like, how do I, how do I affect change? Like, how how can I help when situations arose? Um, so, from a laboratory medicine standpoint, what efforts can we make to make a more inclusive environment for patients? Like, how can we help with some of these disparities? I mean, I would say by talking um, through social media network, talking to our coworkers, our family members, um, just actually having your, your, your voice be heard. Um, if you have the opportunity to speak about testing, even if it's at the grocery store six feet apart, take that opportunity. Um, now's not the time just to remain quiet um, uh, and then stay educated. That's another big thing. Make sure you're actually reading the, the papers that are coming out, staying informed. When people do ask you questions, knowing that you're in the laboratory, you'll be able to answer them accurately and give them more education that they um, can themselves pass on to others. Um, education is definitely a, a key for everything, getting good education out to people that minorities or just people in general. And being a good educator is getting, you know, if you have the information, you know, okay, I need to wear a mask because I can visually see with one of the local news stations, we're actually doing a mask little experiment with them where we're coughing, singing, talking with a mask and without a mask. And the great thing about that is you can actually see the bacteria on one of the micro auger plates. So even though we can't visualize the virus itself with a naked eye, um, just by partnering with that news group on some education to show them, okay, look what's coming out of the droplets growing on this plate. If I see less of this bacteria here wearing a mask versus not wearing it, I know, okay, I can actually visually see, okay, I'm doing something and protecting my loved one. Um, so I'd say education is, is going to be key. Yeah, I think we can all agree that diversity and inclusion are crucial aspects of high quality patient care because it improves the patient experience, it provides necessary role models, and it just increases the overall quality of healthcare. So when we're, you know, we, especially in the beginning, we talked a lot about the disparities that we found in terms of uh, the certain communities that were hit by this particular coronavirus. Uh, what can the pathology and the laboratory community do from patient education or advocacy standpoint in these communities? Um, Dr. Fitzhugh, I will start with you. 
You know, I think that Dr. Samdi spoke to it very well is we have to get out in front of the patients. We have to get out in front of our community leadership, you know, in areas, you know, like one of mine where I practice, which is an urban area, you know, there is relief when I talk to people like this, when they see a face that looks like theirs, because that trust then comes back. I don't have the issue of, you know, is this doctor being honest with me? Do I have to worry that this doctor would treat me differently based on how I look? You know, I wouldn't treat anybody differently based on how they look. But, you know, I, I have made it a point to try to get out there and use my voice because I know I can be an agent for change. I can be an agent for that trust that we haven't seen so much in this pandemic. And I think, again, you know, as pathologists, we have such an important role because we understand the nuances of the testing. And just, you know, just to convince people, you know, particularly people who look like me, you know, if you need this test, we will find a way for you to get it because that is the thing that has really plagued us is the lack of accessibility to testing. When things were really bad here in New Jersey and turnaround times and some of the commercial labs were 10 days or more, you know, we had to step up, particularly in our larger hospitals and our academic centers to provide testing. And one of the great things, you know, about the urban environments was that we were able to provide testing to people who would not have otherwise been able to get it. So again, pathologists and laboratory um, professionals have a huge role in this, but we, particularly those of us who share an ethnic background with some of the more disadvantaged patients, we can't be afraid to get out there and really use our voices so that they know there's someone in their corner. Fantastic. Dr. Sandi? Yes, I agree. I guess uh, all those are great strategy in the short term and long term, I think this pandemic has, is teaching us that we really have to rethink many things we've done in the past. And um, maybe when we start training pathologies or level two professional, we should definitely include a component of diversity uh, and inclusion part of it, uh, and also train our new members or existing members of the field that we have to be upfront, uh, not to be afraid. It's no longer being a pathologist or laboratory professional, it's to stay in your corner on the basement, but we have to be out there. So hopefully this will um, inform educators to let them know this should be part of how we train um, pathologists and so forth. I think that you're making, I was gonna say, I'm gonna jump in here because I got something to say. Uh, Dr. Sambi, I think you make a really good point that, because so often, uh, whenever, during my time on the bench, so often you come to see yourself as just, you kind of believe what others in the healthcare community think of you, right? Like you're, you know, in the proverbial basement, just, you know, you go to work, you do your job, you clock out, you go home. But I think that that's a real paradigm shift what you're talking about is the idea that, no, we have a responsibility to go to work and do our job and do it well, but we also have a responsibility to the profession. We have a responsibility to our patients. We have a responsibility to the community to educate everyone about our knowledge and about our expertise and about what we can do for the community. And I think that's a really great point that you made. Dr. Fitzhugh? You know, I just wanted to add, you know, part of this visibility, and, and I agree with education and how it's important, you know, once we get to the level of training, but we also have a pipeline issue in our, in our fields. And we're really not seeing the diversity that we should see. You know, 
in the pathologist side, we're not seeing it. We're not seeing enough of it at the bench. And I think it's so important that we start this pipeline early because I think you, when you build trust, you know, in, in the long game, if you're running the long game, building trust starts early. So if you can get out into the communities, you know, where children start to see how important our specialties are. And in the long game, if you keep getting out into the community and they continue to see, by the time they get to college, by the time they get to medical school, they start thinking, you know, I think I might want to do the MLS track. I think I might want to go to go to medical school and be a pathologist. You know, that, that pathology assistant thing sounds really cool. I think I might want to do that. You know, the only way we're going to get there to achieve the diversity that will best serve our patients is focusing on that pipeline because I think that's really the only way we can achieve in the long game. Absolutely. And I think that's where representation is so absolutely crucial. You know, I remember Misty Copeland, she would go to all these communities and, and walk around in her tutu just to show like, yes, you know, you can, anybody can be a ballerina, a professional ballerina, a very successful ballerina. And, you know, I think it's so incredibly important to have to have that representation, like you said, for the pipeline, but also for patient care, because if you have a doctor that looks like you, that comes from a similar culture or place or location, you know, there it, it's a whole different type of connection and a whole type of different patient care that you you can receive. Absolutely, Mr. Odegaard. No, you had. Yeah, no, I would agree with both of you guys. It does. Um, so I'm glad that ACP's got the Career Ambassador Program. It's getting laboratory professionals out there, not. I mean, in the classroom, talking to different science classes, clubs. Um, if you actually see somebody that's like you or just, you do have a aha moment, I, you know, I can do this. Oh, I didn't know about being a pathology assistant. Um, I did an event with a small science group and I had three or four students come up to me and say, oh, I didn't think about being a laboratory science professional or oh, I want to be a microbiologist. What do I need to do? And when some students get to keep mentoring them, so with a couple of them, I found them extra activities that they can do virtually with COVID um, just to keep that learning and that interest going. So I, it definitely does start early. Um, and once you, like Dr. Katu was saying, once you build that pipeline, you have that doctor that can understand you on a completely different level because um, they understand who you are, your background, and you're going to trust them more. You're going to take that advice. You're going to be more open with them. Absolutely. And less guarded. So we have already kind of covered this, but we can talk about it again if we if we didn't cover it as much as we would have liked to. A large part of our response to the pandemic and our society's reopening uh, hinges on basic tenets of public health, like hand washing and social distancing and contact contact tracing those that are infected, which obviously we're kind of slipping on because. It's easier to contact trace when you have a test result 48 hours rather than seven days later. But in a perfect world, uh, do some of these interventions, has it helped manage the the pandemic um, and manage the outbreaks in underrepresented communities? Or do we need to have better messaging still? Is there, basically, I guess I'm asking is, is our interventions helping these communities or has it not really helped at all? Dr. Smetty, let's sure. Sure, I think it's really hard to know because you we can make the argument without what we've been doing, the number could have been worse. But one thing we can all agree: whatever the intervention uh, in place, they're not good enough. The number is still too high, and there's I think all the things we talk about about 
uh, community engagement, uh, work on, on the turnaround time and engaging local leaders. And all those things could help. So I think we have to be humble. This is a new pandemic. There's a lot of things we don't know about this virus and how to control it. There are things we know for sure, like social distancing and also wearing masks. But we have to be humble knowing that there's not one size fit all solution for all communities. We have to take the efforts to know what affects Navajo and the African-American or Latino. Of course, there are some basic common things that work, but there might be something unique to each community that we have to be aware to at least to be a bit more successful in what we're doing. So I guess the short answer, whatever we're doing is not good enough. Uh, when you see those huge disparities in terms of cases and the health outcomes, not good enough. So I think we have to step back and ask ourselves, what can we do? Should we have a more specific tactic for each community and understand what are the challenges? What are the reasons why we have those disparities? Dr. Fitzhugh or Mr. Odegaard, you have any comments as well? Dr. Fitzhugh? Mm -hmm. Sure. So, you know, I agree with Dr. Samdi. I mean, within our own lives, within our own spheres, I think we can all be doing more. There has to be a point where people recognize that this is not a hoax, that this is not a made-up disease, that people are dying, and dying in numbers that are just not acceptable. And the reality, reality is at this point, you know, we're probably not going to be truly safe, and I say this in air quotes because who knows until there's a vaccine. So what can we do until there's a vaccine that's readily available for all people so that everyone has access to it? Because it can't, again, just be the most privileged folks who have access to the vaccine. You know, in my humble opinion, that vaccine needs to hit the more disadvantaged areas first because they don't have the benefit of social distancing. You know, if you live, and I was talking with a good friend of mine, you know, when you have six, seven, eight people living in a house, one of them gets COVID-19, they're all going to get COVID-19. There is absolutely no way, even if everyone in the house wore a mask, there is absolutely no way that you're going to stop that disease from spreading. There's not enough room in certain places to get people apart. So while we know, yes, hand washing works, we know that, or we've learned that social distancing does make a difference. We saw it here in New Jersey. We shut down the state for a couple of months, keep people away from each other. And yes, eventually the cases start to fall, but that's not enough. And we have to look at all the other factors that go into transmission of this disease. We're still learning. I mean, it's amazing how many papers were published and then retracted because the information came out too quickly and didn't hold up. You know, we heard about how hydroxychloroquine was supposed to be the miracle drug until it wasn't. Meanwhile, people with lupus and rheumatoid arthritis couldn't get their medication that they needed to live a normal pain-free life. So... You know, we, we have to, I think we have to continue to be vigilant, but as Dr. Somdi pointed out, we have to acknowledge that there are differences between people and their life situations, their cultures, how they live, because true grasp and understanding of that will make us better armed to truly tackle this pandemic. And I think we still have a long way to go. Mr. Odegaard, do you have any um, comments? I do. Um, yeah, I, would, I would agree with everyone on um, just the fact that would like to say we're in a better place than we are. It would be more helpful, I feel, if we actually had some kind of like national strategy, um, if we were putting more funding into our public health labs, into more public health efforts to educate people. 
it sadly does come down to privilege because we don't have a plan. Um, we're not putting money where it needs to be. So if I have the, the house where I can distance and I can go get my testing done or work from home, if I don't have the privileges, then I can't and I have to hope for the best. So I feel like if we were investing more in our public health labs and in our public health and actually having some kind of national strategy, it would just be as much of a, a free fall as it has been. But I'm still hopeful. There is still hope. We're fighting the fight. It's a marathon. It's not a short run. I'm getting a little tired, but it's a marathon. I keep doing what we're doing and bring visibility to the lab and to testing and run that marathon. Mm -hmm. Dr. Sandi? I was going to say, I, I want to go back to what Dr. Fichu mentioned about the vaccine. We know when we get it uh, and it works, I'm afraid this disparity may not go away. And we know what we should do. I should. All, I, I think we all agree, and then we know what we need to do to really attack this COVID-19 pandemic, meaning all the stuff we talk about. But when the vaccine comes, I think we definitely should have priority under under minority people in nursing home, people who are more vulnerable. Uh, the data should dictate uh, how we go to the next step. But also the ugly reality also, we're fighting a healthcare crisis and a pandemic, but also we are in a political environment where it makes what needs to be done not really feasible. We are fighting another fight as well that dragging us, kind of like running a marathon, but then you have 10 pounds bags on you to make it even harder. So we, I think we have to acknowledge that the political environment right now is a perfect storm for the virus to just do what it's doing. I mean, this is something we did touch on, but I do think it's important to reiterate that the lab has such an opportunity here. And I think it really is crucial for us to really shake aside the stereotypes you know, of the basement and of you know the people who don't want to talk to anybody, the people who don't want to be seen and we're happier in our spaces by ourselves and really get out there and speak. And I love what we're doing today because what we're doing today is putting important voices and leadership in our laboratories out into the world to see. I think it's so incredibly important for the world to know that we are as passionate about getting this testing to our friends, to our families, to people we've never met in our lives as people are to be tested. And I think, you know, because we haven't had you know, that face in the forefront, a lot of people say, you know, let's thank our frontline heroes. And they go through all these other specialties and you never hear about the lab. And that's because folks don't know. And I think it's just so, it is, this is such a great opportunity. I hope that this podcast is publicized widely so that not just for the medical community, but for people outside of it to see that there are people who are passionate about doing what needs to be done and getting to the right answer. Yeah, I think we all, I would imagine that very few of us would have imagined how long of a marathon this would be, right? And if you think back in March, February, you know, I think we were hoping it was going to be a sprint. And yet here we are, almost in August, just running this marathon that is still continuing. I'm not sure if we're seeing the finish line just yet. So thank you all so much for joining us in this conversation. I think, you know, these are such fantastic conversations and discussions. We can clearly go on for a lot longer because there's endless amount of ideas and, and topics we can discuss related to this. 
This was a very interesting discussion, and I know that we all learned a lot. Yeah, this was a really great discussion on a very important topic, and I'm glad that everyone took the time today to do so. Also, I want to remind our listeners to tell all of your colleagues, tell all your friends about the podcast. And if you liked what you heard, you can subscribe through your favorite podcast aggregator so you don't miss out on future episodes. Finally, don't forget that you can receive CME and CMLE credit for listening to our podcast by looking for Inside the Lab in the ACP store on our website, www.acp.org. Thank you all so very much. Thank you. Bye. Have a good day.